You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Nada Bakos, who's a former CIA analyst and targeting officer. As an analyst, she wrote and contributed to key intelligence reports from the front lines in Iraq, reports delivered to the White House, congressional leaders, and Department of Defense, and she was on the team charged with analyzing the relationship between Iraq, al-Qaeda, and 9-11. Then as a targeting officer, she was tasked with finding the godfather of ISIS and mastermind of al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. We'll leave the rest of her bio for the conversation. So welcome, Nada, and thank you for joining us today on SpyCast. Thanks. So I, I always think it's interesting to ask people uh, how they got to the, the job of working in intelligence. And you actually come from a small town in Montana that a lot of people may have never heard of. I actually know a little bit about it. But I spent a couple months there fighting forest fires when I was in the Army back in 2000. So I do know your, your neighborhood, but it doesn't necessarily uh, stand out uh, on, on a map. Uh, but what, what brought you from small town Montana to a job at CIA? So there were a few steps in between. Um, after I graduated from high school and went off to college, I just had always had this idea that I would work overseas and have an international job. So that's how come I initially applied for the agency and decided that I really did want to live overseas. I graduated undergrad um, in the early 90s when we were going through a depression, and it just was the job market was flat. I couldn't find a position, especially anybody that could, you know, pay me to go overseas. So, um, stuck it out in the States a while longer and then eventually applied at the agency. Overseas travel sounds like your job you would want to do is in operations. What, what drove you to the analytical side? Um, that's a good question. I guess because I had a background in economics, it just made sense and I think I'm more, much more introverted than some of the case <laughs> officers I initially met. And then I, of course, realized later that's really 
it, not all of them are, you know, huge extroverts. There's runs the gamut of personalities, but, um, I don't know. I was, I was just much more interested in diving into the analysis side and the research and, um, spending my time behind, I guess, behind a computer. Well, you were there at a time where you began to see some of this overlap between operations and analysis where it wasn't so bifurcated as it had been back in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. Did you find yourself doing a lot of the jobs that were traditionally thought of as, as operations jobs? I mean, I think of – we'll talk about being a targeting officer, but looking at being forward deployed and being overseas and doing things that would normally be considered more operations side. Yeah, after 9-11, it certainly did change. And there were analysts, um, you know, of course, there were uh, positions for analysts uh, working overseas um, alongside, you know, the case officers. But they were doing analytic work. They were briefing principals that were, you know, based in that region or in that city. So but at the same time, you have to have a lot of operational awareness. And some of the stuff you're doing is working with liaison on operations. So you become more embedded. So they weren't, and that's a traditional analytic job. So those, they weren't always completely divorced. Um, but at the same time, they didn't sit next to each other at headquarters. Um, and then they did in the center after nine 11 in the counterterrorism center. And so it was, it was definitely different. And the fact that we were reading, you know, the raw operations traffic, it, I think really did change the dynamic and the understanding of, how each job functions. There's a horde of, of CIA analysts who came to the agency after 9-11 focused on counterterrorism, but you predate that uh, by quite some time. I mean, you're talking about the 1990s in this case, before terrorism was first and foremost the thoughts of most Americans. What drove you to CT as a career versus, you know, looking at North Korea or China or Russia or one of the more traditional great power centers? Well, I didn't join CT really until after 9-11. Okay. I was at the agency, but I was also <laughs> working in a um, – in a. Uh, my group was working on illicit activities. We were looking at everything from you know, money laundering and trafficking and anything that, that gained them some kind of financial leverage in the underground economy and the illicit world. So that was initially what I was doing and, and part of my purview at that time also was looking at North Korea. So it wasn't that I was I was not one of the first people, you know, working in CT. I wasn't part of Alex Station, mm -hmm. but um, I had always had an interest, obviously, in sort of this, um, you know, illicit underground uh, connection to, you know, why do people, some people work covertly, why, you know, this this whole criminal network and and. I think that was just a natural segue to go from illicit finance over to counterterrorism. I, I wonder about mentorship at, this, at the CIA because we've talked to several of your former colleagues, people like Cindy Storer and Barbara Sood and others who worked CT before and after during 9-11. Topher Black, another good example of someone that we've done in the podcast prior. When you moved over – uh, and, and I assume with many other people after 9-11 when, when all the scramble took place. Was it uh, an environment where you were kind of taken uh, under the wing of people who had been there for a while and brought up to speed very quickly? Uh, or, or was it just such a chaotic experience that it was kind of you had to figure things out on your own? So I actually had not moved over until 2002. 
Um, I purposely chose, we were doing some support of counterterrorism activities already. We, cause we had been looking at illicit finance. Some of that had to do with terrorism, obviously, and just a wide array of different terrorist organizations, not just Al Qaeda. So we were already kind of in that game in a way by just working in that office, even though it wasn't in the counterterrorism center. Um, it wasn't until 2002 when I just decided to completely make the switch. And when I did, I went to that team that was, you know, now looking at Iraq and yeah, we were, you know, you're just, you are thrown into the middle of it. Things were still not slowing down in the counterterrorism. Even in 2002, it was just this constant movement and you had to figure out how to get yourself up to speed. Um, the senior analysts were, were really good about helping bring us up to speed, move us along, have us understand everything that's, you know, currently happening and functioning um, in the context of the subject matter and the team. This is this year is amazingly the 15th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and, and there's some pretty extraordinary statistics out there where a recent poll showed that 43% of Americans still think it was a good idea to invade Iraq. And something amazingly, 39% of Americans thought we had accomplished our goals when we invaded Oof. Iraq. Which, yeah, a gut punch when you read that stuff. I, I assume you don't agree <laughs> with, with the 39 or even the 43% of people out there. Yeah. You know, was Saddam a good guy? No, he was not. Did that call for a regime change, an entire war and intervention on our part? Probably not. There were other ways to get rid of him. And I don't think we put our foot on that gas pedal well enough to justify removing him because clearly we didn't have an after plan that worked very well. And there wasn't a lot of forethought put into an after plan. So when you, you know, collectively thinking about, was it worth it? Absolutely not. Not from the perspective of all the Iraqis that were displaced and killed, the United States military killed, um, you know, and, and how would it impact the region? The bleed over into Syria from the organization that started out in Iraq, Al Qaeda in Iraq, that became ISIS, has now destroyed that entire country. Right. So, besides Bashar al-Assad. From my perspective, this was absolutely not worth it. One of the major criticisms of going to Iraq was the, all the attention it took away from Afghanistan. Was that clear at the time from the perspective of CIA? Yes. Because the numerous amount of DOD resources that were getting shifted over, we're having to match some of that. We're having to match personnel. We're having to match, you know, a lot of it dovetails. Once you start that war machine moving, then you have to be able to support your end of the bargain. And so it did. It did draw some resources away from Afghanistan. Now, at the same time, you know, we know what happened with bin Laden and al-Qaeda after 9-11, were we? That was the other question. I guess you could have was Afghanistan supposed to be, you know, an occupied war, or are we going to just go after Al Qaeda? And we chose to occupy Afghanistan. Right. And from my perspective, that was still a muddled call. I don't understand the point of that when Al Qaeda was the target. I, this is counterfactual history. Obviously, we we don't, we know how long it took to find Bin Laden. But is there is there a legitimacy to the argument that's being made by some that taking attention from Al Qaeda and pushing it onto Iraq 
really slow down the, the search for bin Laden? I, I mean, because I didn't work on strictly on the search for bin Laden, I don't think anybody worked strictly on the search for bin Laden. It was a whole encompassing looking at Al Qaeda and the threats and all the moving parts. Right. Um, so it was, I, but personally, just from my purview, um, he was always, always on the target deck. I don't know if you can say that's hindsight's 2020. Can you say we would have had X amount of more resources? Would we have found him sooner? Possibly. So let me ask you about your job as a chief targeting officer, because we've talked a little bit on this podcast before about leadership analysis, about kind of getting inside people's heads and understanding what makes them tick. How much overlap is there with traditional leadership analysis and being a chief targeting officer? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's quite a bit of overlap. You're, you're looking at all the motivations, the assessments of how this person thinks. Um, you know, if you look at somebody like Kim Jong-un, who's, you know, lived a largely covert lifestyle, that's not too different from looking at some, you know, of the terrorist leaders from the perspective of the profile of the person. It's hard to find information about them. You have to go about unique ways of figuring out what, how they're thinking, feeling, and what their strategy is. Targeting individuals is a fairly new concept. I mean, you can go back to maybe Panama, Noriega, or Somalia, or even Bosnia a couple years before 9-11. Was there a learning curve, now both for you individually and for the agency as a whole, did you perceive that as you went along, you got better and better at doing it, and then in writ large, the agency as a whole? I think so. Um, but part of that is really just about the human dynamic of how each individual functions. And part of it was also the fact that technology was moving at such a rapid speed and pace that we were having to keep up with the cat and mouse game of how much farther ahead they would get, you know, in, in trying to subvert our intelligence collection and then us being able to get ahead of them and anticipate the next technology that they might use. So that really did add a whole other layer on top of, trying to find as you know covert organizations and individuals how much overlap was there between some of these persons of interest i mean i, I think the question of how much intelligence from the hunt for zarqawi help in the hunt for bin laden or vice versa or were you constantly having conversations with others who were focused in on different leaders within al-qaeda to kind of see how there might be some kind of coordination of movement so when you're looking at any group, whether it's Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, the agency is charged with degrading and dismantling those organizations, first and foremost, stopping any immediate threats. And so if stopping an individual accomplishes one of those goals, then then that's what you do. So the, the individual targeting is not the overarching goal. It is those other three things first. And whatever makes sense to do, to accomplish those goals, um, because if you just continually go after individuals, you you get into a cycle that is not efficient and does not necessarily impact an organization. The leadership de- decapitation is a controversial, you know, tactic, and one that I think has to judiciously be deployed. It cannot be a strategy in and of itself. Well, I, I remember laughing about this at the time, but I remember at one point there was a joke that being the number two person at Al-Qaeda had the 
shortest life expectancy in the world because we just kept killing the next number two that stepped into the role and it didn't seem to do anything. Right. So, well, seemed to, you know, but at the same time, that number two was actually the external threat or operations person who was planning attacks against uh, Western countries in the United States. So that's why that role was so pivotal. And that's why that individual was a target. It wasn't just a leadership decapitation for the purposes of that. It was purposeful in the dismantling and degrading of their um, ability to attack us again. So when I was doing research for anything I was doing research for, whether it was my PhD dissertation or books or, or just hardcore research into something, it was hard for me to turn it off. I would dream Russian nuclear weapons. I would dream, you know, intelligence about atomic physics, whatever it was. You're looking into individuals. You're targeting people. Is that something you can turn off? Like, how do you, how do you kind of say, okay, my day's over. Let me go and do other things and watch TV without thinking about this individual or this group that you're trying to take out. Is is there a way to have a non-professional life outside of this job? You know, I think if you add the layer on top of that of being um, in the middle of a war, you know, and and right after right after 9-11, there's a whole nother <laughs> layer of stress that goes on top of that. So, you know, my in my situation, um, I didn't ever turn it off because I was looking at this organization as a whole. I was trying to figure out how do I. How can I stop them from killing more Iraqi civilians in addition to U.S. military members? And how do I prevent them from planning any external operations? I mean, those three things were constantly part of my day and night. Well, we're, we're, we're looking forward to, to reading the book uh, about your, your time as a targeter. Uh, uh, we, may, we may not see it for a little bit. Um, your, your book is in PRB hell, and a lot of people out there might understand how that goes. Can you talk a little bit about, as much as you can, I know that there's, there's issues regarding how much you can say and how much you can't, about how difficult this task has been for you to release, you know, information that I think we all need to read to understand the last 15 years. So it's been an interesting journey because I have up until this point, not really had an issue with the CIA's publication review board. The individuals there have been very helpful. They provided me guidance as soon as I left the agency on what I can and cannot say to keep myself out of trouble. They answered a lot of stupid questions that I had in the beginning because I was super paranoid about doing something wrong. Um, you know, so I, I want to say this is not going after the bureaucrats that work there. These, this is not about that. This is about the, the policy and the process that's in place that puts them actually in a really difficult position. Um, and I, my book was in an exceptional amount of time um, was in their review process. And part of that is because it had to go from CIA over to other agencies, namely DOD, um, for their review. Because I, I worked a lot with special forces and they have a share agreement that they will let them look at their own equity um, when it comes to manuscripts. So that in itself took a really long time. And really the, once I got it back, there was so much redacted that at that point it was clear to me that this was, this battle was not going to be won by me. I tried to speak with the DOD to see if I could get an assessment on 
why they black inked out page after page after page in different sections of my book and they were unwilling to meet. So I felt like I had, I asked so many former colleagues what they thought I should do and, um, and collectively took their advice and contacted Mark Zade, who has a lot of experience, um, filing lawsuits against the government and felt confident, um, working with someone like, like him who wouldn't, you know, escalate it, make it, hyperbolic experience (laughs) and just try to get the book published is what I'm trying to do. Mark Zaid will proudly tell you he has the world record for most spy cast. He's been on this. He's done more, more of our podcast than anybody else. Uh, uh, he's a close friend of the museum uh, and he certainly knows what the hell he's doing. And I think that exactly, you know, that's the one person you go to for this. I mean, and just today, as we're recording this, this, this will be a little while before it pops up. Um, another of your uh, former counterterrorism uh, colleagues, and maybe you didn't work with her directly, or maybe you knew her, you didn't, uh, from CIA is going to run into somewhat the same situation. And it sounds like, let me let me ask you, you can only say so much, obviously, about this, but it seems like CIA, in your experience, was somewhat better in telling you what you needed to tweak in order to make this work. And it was the DOD that was more problematic. Is that, am I putting words in your mouth, or is that the case? <laughs> That was my experience. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, you know, and I don't know the current lawsuit that you're referring to. I'm not sure exactly um, what her experience was with the agency's PRV. Do, do you think there's a double standard with the rank and file versus the leadership when it comes to getting stuff? I mean, very famously, I think it was Panetta who just said, I'm not even going through the PRB. I'm just going to release my book. And then others who clearly have written things that kind of raise some eyebrows and they're able to get it through PRB when people such as yourself and others at the, at a you know middle level had much more difficulty. Right. I mean, well, I think Panetta did say that he also had issues with some delay at the PRB um, was my understanding. Isn't that right? Right. And he just said, screw it. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess from that perspective, it's not necessarily, I, I do think, you know, the senior executives from the agency definitely get books done faster. Um, but I don't know. And I don't know if I'm extrapolating too much, but I can't help but notice the fact that, you know, the two current lawsuits against the agency are both women yeah. and we're both, you know, mid and lower level um, employees, former employees. So I do, I do have to wonder (laughs) at some point if it's not a combination of things. Yeah. As an intelligence historian, I love the fact that there are all these books being put out by people who were there that can kind of tell us their experiences, give us a fly on the wall perspective. And think about the, the, the massive expansion of this. I mean, when, when you started at the agency, there were maybe, you know, you wouldn't need to take off your shoes to count as many books from people who had been there and could tell you about it. Now there's many, many of them. And it's great, again, for someone like me or for anyone out there who just loves reading about real world scenarios. Uh, is it a different environment for people coming into the agency today, having that as a resource? Or is there, I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to lean in any direction, but is there a double edged sword to this about there's so much information out there that, um, it can be potentially problematic depending on where the information's coming from. Yeah. And that's how, I mean, that is one of the reasons that the 
review board needs to be so careful. They have to be very consistent about what they approve and don't approve so that you can't just start putting pieces of a puzzle together to figure out how the agency functions. Um, and I totally respect that process and have submitted everything I've had published to them for that reason. Um, I do know that I have had, I've received criticism myself from people who are former retired agency, um, usually case officers saying, you know, why are these agency people writing all these books that you should just retire quietly and that should be enough. And a lot of them have had retired quite some time ago Mm -hmm. that I've heard that from and some more recently, but from my perspective, we live in a completely different world than we did even 15 years ago. You know, when you look at open source information and how much you can find just from an open source perspective, it's so different than even then, especially from when I started the agency. And we can't deny the fact that there is a lot of information out there already, regardless if we're writing these books or not. Um, collection, intelligence collection has completely changed because of the fact that you can access so much information just over the Internet. Right. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. How much how much is pop culture problematic in this regard? I mean, we let, let me let me kind of frame this. I mean, we are we're a museum that does include things that are pop culture because a lot of people's entry point to the world of intelligence is pop culture. They just don't have courses in school. They don't have a lot of other ways to think they can learn about it. I mean, some is so silly it's very easy to blow off. No one thinks that NATO Bacos was jumping out of airplanes with a martini in one hand and a, a stupidly named blonde in the other to go do her counterterrorism work. But there are shows like Homeland, right? And to me, that's kind of the, the interesting example. Are real looking enough that could potentially be a problem, like putting out information that people believe um, and there's nothing out there other than people like you writing these kind of books that can kind of say, all right, look, that's fiction. This is how it happened in the real world. Do you think shows like Homeland are problematic? I mean, I think even without talking about the portrayal of women, but you can certainly get into that if you want to. You know, I don't know about problematic. I mean, on one hand, they're a good selling point, right? They are they are what brings some people to the agency to do this kind of work. I do think that can be problematic from the perspective that some people who join the agency because of what they see in film and TV are super disappointed once they get there. It doesn't look like that. It's at the end of the day, a government institution and it's a, you know, you're a bureaucrat. 
So that can be a huge letdown. And I think those people end up leaving after about five years because I think they're just disillusioned by the whole thing. And so I think from, you know, from that perspective, I think it's useful to have a little bit of reality introduced so you know actually what you're getting into. I think it also helps to understand the job a bit more and what it's going to ask of you, because I think that also is kind of an eye opener for a lot of people. And I think they should go in with more information. Let me, let me ask you about one kind of pop cultural trope that I think that you might have something to say about. Um, you've been asked uh, a lot about a particular movie uh, that, that came out a couple of years ago, uh, Zero Dark Thirty. And I think even your pinned tweet on Twitter right now is, <laughs> for the millionth time, I'm not Maya uh, from Zero Dark Thirty. Um, but one of the things I, I found most problematic after that movie came out was this Lone Ranger concept, this kind of singular Bond type intelligence officer that's fighting the system and doing it all alone. I, I, I've never talked to anyone, former or current practitioner, that doesn't work in a massive organization, sometimes too big, right? Bureaucracy sometimes gets in the way, but there's no success without people around you. I mean, am I completely off base there? Does that drive you crazy when you see like the one against the world kind of portrayal of intelligence professionals? It does. I know um, I'm, there are some people who have that perspective. Um, you know, there was a you know time period when that movie came out. There was a lot of news reports about who Maya is and what she's thinking and says. You know, so some of that lined up, I guess, with the movie. But um, I do think that if you hadn't had, you know the analysts that work around that time, like Cindy Storer, Cindy Storer and Barbara Sood and, and Gina Bennett, how would you know who Al Qaeda is and what bin Laden is all about? How would you even know anything about their motivations? If you hadn't had those people laying all that groundwork, you wouldn't have had the intelligence collection over the last decade to pull from. So I do laugh when people think that they're this, you know, lone person on the top of the mountain conquering Goliath, but that's how they want to perceive themselves. Far be it for me to tell them differently. What do you think about how the modern public image of the CIA has kind of changed that dynamic within the agency? I'm thinking of they have a Twitter feed now. They're working very closely with Hollywood. <laughs> You've got all these – you know, we talked already about former DCIAs writing memoirs, even some hosting podcasts. I mean Mike Morell had a really interesting podcast before. Is this good for transparency? Or is this a well, – forget good or bad. How has this changed the way CIA does business? You know, that's a good question. I mean because if you look at the dynamic of how the CIA is just – it's changed just in the last five years and I've been gone longer than that now. So um, I think there is a certain – what I was frustrated about when I worked there is there is a certain amount of transparency that they can have and should have and um, – interacting with the public and providing information because at the end of the day, they are funded by taxpayers while you're a co covert or organization. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't at least have some kind of communication. And we know how to communicate openly without divulging secrets so that they're professionals at that. And that should be okay. And they should, should do that. Um, I think you also asked about the farmers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of us talking, that's for sure. But if you, I also think we're also talking because there is so much criticism leveraged at the intelligence community and specifically at the CIA. And I think what we, for me at least, what I really want people to understand is how it functions and why. 
so that it's not just about labeling things as fake news. It's about this is this is the entire process that goes into coming up with this kind of assessment. It's not just an opinion. Well, let me ask you about the politicization of intelligence. This is something that's not new. You saw this in the buildup to Iraq. It's happened again and again. And I've actually, I've, I've, in, in doing research for this conversation, I've seen you providing insight for those who are in the business now, kind of, kind of telling, helping people to work through this politicized environment. Did someone do that for you? Did someone kind of talk to you about, you know, getting beyond the politics of intelligence and just kind of getting down to brass taxes? Well, my team chief, when I joined uh, the Iraq team in Counterterrorism Center, she was fantastic. She absolutely understood everything about how politicization could affect <clears throat> our analysis. And she prepared us. She prepared to make sure we had the, the right mindset to remain objective. Um, you know, a lot of us may have disagreed with the fact that we were going to war, but that didn't preclude us from doing our jobs and making sure we gave them the correct information to try to make the best decisions. And I think she really instilled that for me on how to handle that kind of um, politicization. How much does the agency have to react to the 24-hour news cycle? Because I, 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 this is certainly something they didn't have to react to 15, 20 years ago. I'm thinking of uh, that when Gina Haspel's name was announced as the, the you know, potential director of CIA and ProPublica, which actually is a pretty fantastic news organization, put out this article that she had been overseeing the waterboarding of Abu Zubaydah and caused a big hubbub. And they jumped the gun, right? They just did not have their information. But there are still people out there that think that today. Uh, they wanted to be first. I'm not sure they made a point to be right. Does CIA have to constantly deal with that now? Is that a whole new ballgame for the public affairs people there? I would say for the administration part of it, the public affairs people, that doesn't affect the operations people. Mm-hmm. There is a there is, though, a breaking news cycle that does affect the analysts. You know, when I was working on the Iraq team, you know, breaking news cycles of everything that the administration was coming up with and saying on, you know, sending talk shows or um, press briefings, you know, that would that would then spur more work for us and more questions we would need to answer or head off um, because of that news cycle. Uh, there, there have been in recent days, actually, um, pretty strong opinions coming out from former directors of both CIA and ODNI. I'm talking about Jim Clapper and John Brennan, harshly critical of the current administration. And granted, they're private citizens at this point. I'm wondering about former intelligence chiefs wading into politics. It is the argument is about it being counterproductive. About you know you have someone in the White House who potentially is already thinking that the agency might be out to get him, uh, and people certainly who are willing to believe and go down that line. Do you see this as a positive where people are kind of standing up and saying, "Hey, look, you know this is my opinion as a private citizen," or is there, is there potential for this to be counterproductive? I mean, it's their right to be able to stand up and say this is how they feel about it. Um, are they representing the CIA? Not not necessarily, um, but you can't help but see them as a former senior executive and or leader of the organization. So that I don't think you can really divorce the two necessarily, What even if they have a former life. I mean, I always know that when somebody asks me about the CIA, 
they see me talking as a former CIA analyst. They don't just see me talking as NADA from Denton, Montana. Um, so I think that's something that is a perspective you have to keep in mind. But do we all keep our cool? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, wait, let, let me ask you a question. I think you know if we can put the controversy aside behind Gina Haspel's nomination. What do you think is going to be the impact of a woman director of CIA? I don't mean she's too emotional, like John Kelly might say at the White House. I mean, for recruiting, for girls who are 14 or 15 and thinking about a career one day. I mean, what, what do you, is this much of a milestone moment as I like to think it's going to be? Personally, absolutely, especially from the operations side. That is an old boys network through and through and still largely is. I absolutely think it's a it's a game changer because women struggle to get on that seventh floor from the operations perspective. The, you know, the analytical side, very different. Um, that had, you know, much achieved much more gender equality earlier on. But not from the upside. And I think that opens the gateway for a woman to, you know, be division heads and department heads where they hadn't traditionally. So I would love to see that change how the agency functions and how women are viewed, especially on the operations side. I mean, there's still, you know, they still even have these jobs still need to, you know, change on the upside. They're still using the jobs that were created during the OSS days. Right. So, yeah, I'd like to see some a reformation happen over there. You can't go a day without uh, – the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I see what tweets have come out of the White House uh, to see how my day is going to be because there's a chance that I might have to do some press or answer some questions about something that came out of a Twitter account in the White House. And You actually last June wrote an extraordinary op-ed on President Trump's tweets and how you – you know, as a, we talked about targeter and leadership analysis and how there's some a bit of an overlap there about how Trump's Twitter feed is a gold mine for foreign intelligence agencies. It is. It absolutely is. I mean, you we see not only the news cycle pivots off of his tweets, um, you see foreign leaders responding um, in kind through either their speeches or some of the actions that they're taking. This is this has become, you know, foreign policy through Twitter, which couldn't be more counterproductive from my perspective. Um, in addition to the Washington Post op-ed that I wrote, I also wrote a piece with a former colleague of mine, Dennis Gleason, on Lawfare blog. And what we did was crafted what is basically how a foreign intelligence service would produce what's called a presidential daily brief for their policymakers and what it looks like as a, you know, leadership analysis on Trump. And it would be pretty easy from, you know, after we went through this exercise to give, especially agents, you know, CIA leaders or spy leaders um, and foreign policy uh, leaders from another country tools to be able to manipulate him. Right. And that's, that was sort of, I guess the biggest eye opener that I had from that exercise. I also wonder what what could be gleaned from his tweets, looking at kind of a traffic analysis perspective. Like, 
when he's tweeting, time of day, yes. like what topics he's focused on. That sort of, I, I bet there's someone making a computer program somewhere that's analyzing, you know, kind of the metrics and, and, and in a broader sense about when he's doing what and how he's thinking certain ways. Oh, yeah. I'm sure his tweets are the most scraped tweets off of Twitter right now um, from a foreign intelligence perspective. Yeah, you could, by the time of day he tweets, the topics that he's t- tweeting on, I mean, you could have figured out he watched Fox and Friends every day just through those things without him ever mentioning it. Right. Um, so you know what his influencers are. Uh, you know, if you go on Fox and Friends, he'll hear you. Or he hate watches Don Lemon on CNN. Um, so there's a, you know... There's a lot you can glean from how do you get his ear from just by reading his tweets. Are there days that you wish you were back at the agency? Are there are world events or happenings that you wish would kind of be in the middle of and have that information that you don't have now as a private citizen? Sometimes there is, I admit. Um, I ebb and flow between, oh, I'm so glad I'm not there right now, <laughs> to I really wish I was there to do this. <laughs> Well, you're 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 in the West Coast, and uh, you just had, I guess, um, in the Seattle consulate, there were a Russian consulate. There were a bunch of diplom- diplomats kicked out as part of the uh, the response to the the British uh, nerve agent attack. Was was that kind of bringing back old, you know, old <laughs> memories from the CIA days? Absolutely. I mean, I'd love to see the intelligence they collected on these guys and be able to target them and collect information and figure out you know, what they're actually, what they have or have not accomplished inside the United States. That'd be great. (laughs) How much, how much did you bring to your post CIA career that you'd learned in the agency? I know that you worked for Starbucks and you brought with your kind of, well, not the same job, but you, you certainly were, were brought on because of your background at the agency. How much did that transfer to the private industry? Um, I guess in some ways more than I expected, especially working in public affairs, you know, it is about analysis of information and dissemination of information. So, you know, you're a communicator in both in both jobs. So there was a huge crossover there. Um, how to, you know, not only talk to the public, but talk to a certain sector of the public um, and how you give, you know, some of this more complicated foreign policy information to executives and make it relevant to their to their business and their bottom line. So if I have to ask you, and you can't say everything, I'm not going to, the easy answer is everything, but what do you see as the major national security challenge moving forward? Is it still asymmetrical threats like Al-Qaeda or ISIS, or do you see a sea change in the direction of the great powers? Or I'll throw you a third option, something kind of esoteric like climate change or immigration. You know, what, what is our, what should be our number one focus moving forward? So I don't see terrorism as this existential threat. Um, I think we maybe misread that right after 9-11, thinking al-Qaeda was more powerful than they are because of what had happened. But um, I don't think it ever has been, thankfully, an existential threat against us. Um, I do see uh, – I feel like the attack on democratic values – and I'm not talking about just the United States, but globally right now, that probably worries me more than anything. In addition to, I guess the next one would be climate change. 
because that comes with it a whole other host of national security problems like water shortages, which quite often leads to war, food, food shortages, the same thing. So um, those two things, is, I think. Is there an intelligence response to the attack on democratic values or, or, or does this go way beyond the intelligence community? Because uh, this, <laughs> you know, that the intelligence component is there to service the policymaker yeah. and the leaders of that country. And if you don't have the right people in place, you have, you are, you can't. Um, the intelligence community doesn't really have a say or a stake in the game on how they use that information. They can only advise. Right. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's always the trick, right? It's it's what the policymakers decide to do. Uh, you have very little input in. You got to con- not convince is the wrong word. You got to provide them with the the ammunition to do their jobs and and hope that they make the right decisions. And I guess what also right now what concerns me so much in the United States is the fear factor. I feel like the fear factor after nine eleven just this this snowball has just kept going. We are scared of everything and everyone in this country at this point, you know, between not letting a child play outside in the yard by themselves to <laughs> calling the cops to um, being afraid of every foreigner that walks into the country. Um, that's just completely blowing it out of proportion, I know. But I just feel like at this point, we have just let that override pretty much common sense. And that concerns me. Is that something intelligence can help with? Because I'm a Cold War historian, so I think of stuff like the bomber gap and the missile gap that were so prevalent in the 1950s and scared the living crap out of everyone in the United States. But it was the U-2 spy plane that showed that that was complete and utter nonsense. Is there a role for the intelligence community in bringing down that fear level? I mean being honest about, hey, look, ISIS kind of sucks, but the likelihood of them being an existential threat is like – one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent, you know, is, but how do you do that and still protect sources and methods and stay in the shadows like the intelligence community is designed to do? Um, I, and I know, I'm sorry, these are impossible to answer the questions. I just, <laughs> I'm not being very fair here, but yes, I mean. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, you answer it first. <laughs> You're the historian. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think that you you, you kind of have to be kind of work that transparency angle. You have to become kind of opaque more than you are to where you are letting out information and you are worried perhaps a little bit more um, about risking sources and methods because there are times when information needs to come out. I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat partisan on the Iran deal. I, you know, I think it actually makes sense. I'm, I, you know, a nuclear weapons historian, so I do have a little bit of expertise on this. But it's clear that facts are the antidote to nonsense. But the problem is facts in this case are incredibly secret, right? We're talking about how do we know what the Iran program looks like? Well, that's, that's really kind of sources and methods. So you might have to have a come-to-Jesus moment about what you're willing to release in order to let the public know how things really are. Yeah. I mean, so are you talking about leaking? No, no, no. I, I'm talking about the government making a conscious decision to release information to the public 
to right. give us the fighting chance of having a rational debate about some of these issues. And I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I mean, we'll use Gina Haskell's confirmation hearing as an example. I think had the agency made the point <clears throat> of releasing her bio and her timeline, the ProPublica article wouldn't have happened. Um, we'd have a better picture as to where she was and when, and to know that she wasn't there during Abu Zubaydah's uh, rendition. So I, I think there is a certain amount of information that should be released to the public to help inform them. Because I think that's really what we're missing quite often is the context. I mean, granted, you just quoted me the poll on the Iraq war, right. which is always astounding to me that anybody ever thought this was a good idea because this is just not a partisan issue. It's just not. Not when you have people's lives at stake, and it should never be. And when it's viewed through that lens, it's so dangerous. So let, let me wrap this up because I know uh, – you have a lot going on by asking you a, a kind of a bureaucratic question, um, but it doesn't have to be. You can kind of go off in a different direction if you want to. But let me let me ask you, what do you see as the biggest institutional challenge for CIA going forward? Ooh, huh. <laughs> that's a big one. It, feel free to make it small if you want to or, or kind of wax philosophic oh, about what you I've, see needs to happen. Because let me, let me sorry, I, I, let me help by maybe framing this. I mean, if you look at the history of CIA, there have been these kind of milestone moments where they've veered off in different directions. And usually it's in response to something that may not be going all that well uh, or a response to technological change or a response to political change. Um, I think – I mean I, I'm a historian, so I hate doing modern-day stuff. But I think we're in the midst <laughs> of one of those, one of those kind of paradigm shifts. And I'm wondering what direction you think CIA is going to veer off in if it does. By direction, what do you mean? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, going more technological, going more. Mm. I mean, it, John Brennan at one point had to kind of say, hey, let's do human again, right? Because we had, you know, focused so much on the CT role. And then, you know, in the 90s, there was this back and forth about, you know, Dato Patrick Moynihan saying, should we get rid of CIA? And, it, you know, these kind of game-changing paradigm moments where you kind of see mm. this shift now, right, where there is a movement back to looking at great power conflict where you have an administration that is not necessarily gung-ho behind the CIA. You have a potential new director that's a bit of a paradigm shift about CIA. And then, of course, it never – if it, it's a bureaucratic or governmental organization. It never works at full efficiency. So uh, this doesn't have to be something you know, mind-blowing. You know, mind but if you think that you – know, what do you think that they're running into that they kind of have to fix moving forward? Hmm. <laughs> so I know, well, this is just regurgitating. I'll say one thing about the human issue. Mm -hmm. The going back to something doesn't work. That time period is over and that's how everything used to work. There is a reason that there's been a shift to technology and to that type of collection because that's the platform people communicate on. But in addition to that, I don't know that human died. I just think in the areas where you're looking at a covert organization like terrorists, it's harder to penetrate those organizations than it is to say, you know, spy on a nation state. Right. There's there are plenty more targets that you can recruit when you're looking at that problem set. Um, 
as far as like what a problem that they could give me some examples of other people's answers. <laughs> I don't I can't even think of like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, so this, this is the, the kind of old guard is one of the things that I always think of. Right. Because I look throughout, um, these paradigm shifts where, you know, in 1992 CIA was full of a, a shitload of people who spoke Russian and when 9-11 happened, scrambling to find people who spoke Arabic or Pashto or, or Urdu or Farsi or other things because there was kind of a paradigm shift. And, you know, in the last 15 years, we really put a lot of our eggs in one basket. And, you know, people want to say, no, we kept watching North Korea and we kept watching Russia and others. But there's been a lot of emphasis placed on counterterrorism. And we seem to be rising out of that a little bit now. And I'm just wondering, you know, what we have to keep in mind. If, 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 if we brought you on to kind of talk to, you know, DCIA or, or others and say, all right, what's the one thing that you would say to keep in mind moving forward? What's your piece of advice? Or better yet, I'll make it easier. Brand new spanking right out of <laughs> analyst training at CIA. A new analyst starting on day one tomorrow. They want to spend 30 years at CIA. What piece of advice do you give them? Ooh, those are two very different questions. <laughs> I didn't say this was going to be easy. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, usually I have all these ideas about how we're going to fix the agency and I can't come up with anything today. Um, I mean, from from the perspective of what, what I really do think um, what the agency is going to face going forward that could be a paradigm shift for them is the fact that we have so so much um, focus right now on military, using the military, and DOD kinetic action yeah. that I think having the patience – and being able to take a pause to let intelligence collection work and having that timeline not shortened, I think that probably is going to be one of the bigger shifts. And that started back right after 9-11 because of the, the frenetic pace of everything. And I'm concerned that that short attention span continues to this day. And I'll use this as an example. If you look at what um, BB, uh, Mr. Netanyahu, uh, proposed yesterday during his PowerPoint slide presentation on Iran and nuclear weapons. He talked about the fact that the Mossad had conducted this operation where they went into Iran and they stole all of these documents out of a warehouse that had to do with, the, with Iran's nuclear operation and retrieved all of those and took them back out of Iran. Now, it, it had to take them a while to figure out the, the warehouse existed, where those documents were, what they were, and how to extract everything out of there. Um, I worry that our intelligence cycle becomes so short because of this frenetic activity around having to do something about it. Um, we shorten that so much that we don't allow the intelligence cycle to take place and to come to fruition. So we talk about this you know, wringing our hands, we don't have enough human collection. Well, I think at the end of the day, one of the biggest impacts is we don't let things work and marinate long enough for us to be able to get that kind of collection. Yeah, we might have just blown the hell out of the warehouse. <laughs> with the, with exactly. The yes. You know what? That 
That was an outstanding answer. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, kind of mull that a little bit because um, I think back to the kind of the way the FBI operated against the Russian illegals back in 2010. Uh, that case marinated for almost a decade before they pulled the trigger on it. And it's kind of one of those slow playing things that I agree that CIA used to do better than just about anybody uh, and see where things led and the kind of knee-jerk reaction to kill the bad guy as fast as we possibly can has kind of led us down a, a less fruitful path. Um, I can't wait to read your book. Um, we absolutely, whenever it comes out, we're, we're going to have you on again to talk about it. Uh, but for now, Nate Abacos, we truly appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Uh, your, your, your insight has been extraordinary, and we really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.